It was the first job that I've ever had where I walked into a room, not just a room, but a, a senior leadership room. And mostly everyone in the room was a person of color, not just a person of color, but a woman of color. And that was really, really cool and incredible. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. In this episode, I spoke with Anatole Jenkins, an organizer who's currently the political chief of staff at the DNC and former national director of states organizing for Biden-Harris. We talked about what he learned moving up to the ranks as a party organizer. Anatole's an impressive guy with an excellent career in the space. You should listen. So after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Anatole Jenkins, political organizer. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from Timeplots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. Timeplots Library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Anatole, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Yeah. So I am Anatole Jenkins. I am an organizer. I'm currently the political chief of staff at the DNC, but have spent my professional career organizing across the country, spending a lot of time in Nevada, working starters for President Obama to get him reelected and really haven't looked back since. And so I've just been going across the country and organizing and am at this point doing the work that I'm doing at the DNC, but in every way, I'm an organizer's organizer. Well, that's, uh, I think, something to be proud of. How did you go down the, this path from the very beginning? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, I grew up in, in Washington, D.C. I grew up in, in a big family full of um, not necessarily a big family in terms of like my siblings. I have, I have one sister, but a big family in terms of a lot of cousins always around. And my my uncle actually is is a pretty prominent pastor in the Washington D.C. area, and so I think maybe there's an aspect of just like public service that came from that of him being that and sort of role in the community, more broadly speaking, that my family sort of played. But I really had no interest in politics prior to you know an aha moment happening during the 2007 and 2008 election. I was very much someone who thought that I wanted to be an architect. And thought that that was, you know, the cool thing. I think I always wanted to sort of create things. And so, you know, started out wanting to be an architect. And I guess I sort of, at this point, I'm sort of an architect of moving people to actually vote and organizing folks. But I wanted to be an architect, went to high school at Charles Herbert Flowers High School in a science and technology program where all of my studies were actually focused and geared towards architectural engineering. And then... My senior year, 2007, happened, and I was just enthralled by the Democratic primary. It's obvious that, you know, seeing Barack Obama, the first Black man, someone who looks like me, inspired me more than anything ever has before in my life. I had never saw someone who looked like me on a platform or a stage 
like he was or someone who even made the work of government and politics look interesting in any way, shape or form. But also just the primary fight more broadly of, you know, a woman and a black man fighting to be the leader of one of two major parties in this country. It's just, it was just amazing. And I couldn't think of a better time to sort of come of political astuteness than at that age in that time. And really decided to just change my trajectory and focus on politics. Didn't know necessarily what it meant at all and what I wanted to do. But I, you know, I saw this guy, Barack Obama, who beat this amazing woman, Hillary Clinton. And this guy, Barack Obama, just kept, I kept hearing this buzzword around this campaign, organizing. I didn't know what that meant, but I, I, I know I just kept hearing it. And I didn't hear it from any of the other, other campaigns. And so once President Obama actually won, I decided that I wanted to go to school for politics. I went to Catholic University. I thought it was pretty smart for me to stay in D.C. since I wanted to go into politics. More specifically, I... I'm like just a determined person and I was determined to in some way, shape or form get involved in this guy Barack Obama's life somehow in, in, in his world, in his orbit. and was able to nagle my way into an internship for his political organization, OFA. And that was sort of the start of it. I was there. I was an intern. I interned for maybe probably about a two solid years, actually. It was a long time for an intern. But, you know, we did the 2010 midterms. After that, we relaunched the president's reelection campaign. And then it was at that point that I sat down with with my boss at the time and said, I want to do this full time and make sure the president gets reelected. And he, he gave me the best piece of advice that I ever, I've ever been given from a career standpoint. He said, great, you can stay here in Chicago with me and be my assistant or some other senior staffer's assistant but you already know how to do that. You already know how to do that because you've been doing that for me basically for two years. What you should do is go to Nevada, be the first organizer on the ground, and actually learn some real leadership skills and be in a position where you can actually grow. And so I went to Las Vegas and I have not looked back since. Who was that boss? His name's Johannes Abraham. You probably know him very well. He just ran the transition and is currently the chief of staff for the National Security Council. So he, he's kind of a, a, a big dog now. But he was he was our, our deputy political director for the 2012 campaign. So leadership skills, very useful in almost any walk of life. What leadership skills did you learn by doing that? You know, I love that you say the leadership skills pretty helpful in in anything that you that you want to do because in in electoral politics, especially in field and organizing, you know, after a campaign, everyone is you know trying to think what they want to do next, and I think oftentimes organizers always feel like, well, my skills are not transferable to do anything. I'm like, you are wrong. You just ran a, a massive organization essentially. That is helpful everywhere. But you know, for me, in terms of the leadership skills. That I learned. Well, for starters, I would say that as an organizer, and obviously this is a podcast full of political wonks who are listening, but you know, as an organizer, you are essentially training volunteers to to help you do the work that you need to do. Massive work. And what you often end up finding is that you a lot of times are introducing this incredible form of activism for people in communities that they don't know about, that they maybe had never knew was an option or an avenue before. And so oftentimes, it a lot of times just feels like you are giving so much back to these communities that you're organizing in. You're training them, you're building leaders themselves. What I found actually was that I learned more myself from in the interaction with organizing volunteers and working with volunteers. You know, I learned, and I think this pertains to leadership, recognizing how you react to failure. 
You know, how do you get back up once you fail? Because failure is a part of life and a part of being a leader. How do you connect with people, you know, and connect with people in a real, in a real way, a real way as a leader, even though you are in a workplace and there is sort of that dynamic. Um, learn how to be honest and vulnerable, you know, and not necessarily specifically just from organizing, but, you know, you go through just the trajectory of my career and my gosh, I mean, there was no better aspect of learning the leadership skill of vulnerability when you lose an election that you thought you were going to win, which was in 2016. And you got to face a, a team of organizers and tell them that, you know, and so you learn, learn leadership skills in terms of vulnerability and how important that is. Oftentimes people view leadership and view vulnerability as as sort of something that you shouldn't do and you shouldn't go there. But, you know, on, honestly, some of like the best leadership lives and exists within vulnerability. Um, how to lead a team and, and actually inspire folks, which, you know, when folks think of like, how do you inspire someone? They think of things that actually are not that important. What really is important is what's actually going to motivate and move that person. Why is that person there to do the work that they're doing then? Which is different for each and every person if you're leading the team. And so part of it is it, what I learned is one, like as, as a whole, leading sort of a team as a whole, you have to be vulnerable. But at the same time, even with leading a team, you are leading specific individuals and everyone's inspired by different things. Everyone's moved by different things. Everyone ultimately in a lot of ways needs a different type of leader. And you kind of have to try and be a little bit of everything for someone. It's such a, a wonderful answer. And it's so accessible to you on the question. I marvel at that a bit. How did that all come to you? Like, is that you having discovered that piece by piece? Is that other people who you reported to, let's say, or worked with who conveyed this to you? How does that all enter your bloodstream and become part of you so that you can tell other people? Well, so one other aspect that that ties to this question about leadership and leadership skill you develop is that like as a leader, you have to be, you have to be your own type of leader. You know, you have to be like uniquely yourself and again, authentic to who you are as a leader. And so you, so, so you ask like, who did I see that? Well, one, I mean, you see leadership skills and leadership from the people who are mentors of you, hopefully, right. And who are leaders for you. And there's an aspect certainly of like modeling leadership, you know, you see it and you model it. But the reality is, is that, you know, one, you shouldn't just have one mentor. You should have many mentors, you know. And so you're kind of picking a little bit up from each of them in terms of what makes sense and, and, and allows for you to sort of create your own leadership style. I've learned so much in terms of leadership from Emmy Ruiz, who's currently the, the political director at the White House. Worked with her for a very, very long time. She's the first person I ever did a voter registration shift with. And she is someone who cares for the people who she, she, she invests in people. And that's, that, that's important in, in long-term investment, not investment for, for the moment, but long-term investment. Someone who opens doors for you. But again, these are the leadership skills, some of the, the tactics and the, the skills that I got from her, but that is not entirely me. And so you pick in, you, you get a little bit from everyone and it's important to just surround yourself with more than one mentor and more than like, you should surround yourself with sort of a, a village. That kind of enlightened leader is really a pleasure to work for and with, right? There are also leaders who somehow obtain followers through much more toxic styles. How do you understand that? Like a lot of people following Donald Trump and he's just 
the complete opposite of that set of values that you're putting forward, right? He doesn't give a crap about the people who work for him. He's not loyal to them. He's not vulnerable. He's not all these things. I mean, he's like the the far end of the spectrum, but somehow humans will follow many styles of leadership, not just the best kind, which I think you're enunciating. I mean, I think that's right on, but I think my way of understanding it is recognizing that at the end of the day, people want to be listened to and heard. And if they feel listened to and heard, they'll often like follow that. And hey, that's not to say that Donald Trump listened to people. You know, that's not to say that he actually did, but there's a way of 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 the individuals feeling that he did. Well, he may have said things that people wanted to hear or or echoed their prejudices or opinions. Oftentimes, whatever I harken back to are, are very much, you know, things related to organizing. Let's say you're an organizer, you're thrown into an area. This is very much my experience when I was first an organizer working for President Obama's re-election campaign. And more often than not, the best way to actually bring someone over to your side, whether it was they're not sure they were going to vote for President Obama, whether it is you were trying to get them to volunteer or come to a rally or something of the sort, the biggest, the most successful tactic was to just listen to them because they just wanted to be heard. And right then, right there as an organizer which you oftentimes don't realize, especially if you're in like this DC bubble, it's like you are, as that organizer, the connection that that person has to the candidate, the president of the United States or the next president of the United States possible. And so like listening, just like being an ear and like speaking of things, saying things that maybe someone wanted to actually hear, and it's really, really important in terms of developing a following. You work for the Nevada State Party, Nevada, Nevada, um, the Nevada. Nevada state. Oh my God! Well, I grew up in Colorado, where we seem to say Nevada, but but I had it wrong all those years. I, I correct myself, Nevada. Yeah. Um, yeah, I Nevada has a very very special place in my heart. It's the first place that I ever practically organized. Um, and I was an organizer there in 2011 and 12. I went back there in 2014. I was the field director for the coordinated campaign. Not the best year for for most Democrats. Terrible one. Man. Certainly wasn't the best year for us, but um, but it was the first time that I actually, you know, led a program and a team of my own from start to finish. So I learned a lot then. And and then I went back to Nevada in twenty in twenty fifteen for Secretary Clinton's caucus campaign. So I spent a lot of time there. It is one of the hardest places to organize via a whole host of reasons. But, you know, you throw yourself into a situation like Nevada, just a tough place to organize when it's your first time organizing. Did you have any issue switching over to Secretary Clinton? Well, Barack Obama was the reason I got involved in politics. And Hillary Clinton was the best option to make sure that we could protect and build upon his legacy. Right. But that was my opinion. You know, it was very important to me that we protected the president's legacy and built upon it. So that was the first. Second is, uh, I, I mean, you look at my career and I think I, I think I have a, a habit of trying to make history. <laughs> you know, I worked for the first black president, tried to get him reelected, worked for Secretary Clinton, um, worked for the now vice president, Kamala Harris. And so I kind of have a, a, a itch in me in terms of making history. And this was an opportunity to do that. I like to do cool things. Um, but also the, the third reason, honestly, was that I wanted to go back to Nevada and actually do a bit of like maybe perfecting the work that we did there in 2012. And, you know, figuring out how we could learn from all the things we did well, but also all the things that we 
didn't do well and the things we didn't do enough and actually try and, you know, rewrite that history. And along with that, just bringing with people who like, you know, people who worked with us in 2012 as well, bringing them back with me so that they could continue on their own professional journeys. It seems like it's a little bit like a sport, like it's this contest. You want to maybe sometimes get another swing at the championship or something, right? You care, you know, you care about what you're fighting for and why you're getting up every day. It's impossible to do it otherwise. Is it true? There's, you know, to do the work that we do, unless you truly do believe, believe in the work that you're fighting for in your heart. But it is like a sports, like, I don't know if you have tattoos, but once you get a tattoo, it kind of, and I don't even have many tattoos, by the way, but if you get it, it kind of is like an addictive thing where once you get one, you do want to get another. And it's the same with campaigns. Once you get one, you kind of want to do another and want to do another. Yeah. If you were going to give one piece of advice to someone running organizing in Nevada in a future race, what would you tell them? I would tell them to expect the unexpected. I would tell them that every and anything that can go wrong likely will. I would tell them lastly, and I think this is the most important with Nevada, is that um, that things don't have to be beautiful to be meaningful. It's probably going to be pretty messy. The work and it isn't going to look perfect and it isn't going to look like what an organizing program probably looks like in Pennsylvania. It's going to be look a lot messier than that. And you are dealing with just like a different electorate. You are dealing with probably a different type of team. We should have diverse teams no matter where we are, but it is of the utmost necessity to have that in Nevada. All that is to say, like, you know, things are going to get a little messy. You know, you are probably going to have to bring in some paid resources that you didn't expect to by the end of it. And that in every way is viewed as like somewhat of a failure to some organizing folks. There's still meaning in the work that you do, even if it looks a little messy. When you think about the calamity that was the 2016 election for the country. Call it a calamity. (laughs) Yeah, I think it was. Do you have any thoughts like looking back about what happened broadly? Man, I have, um, I mean, maybe if you would have asked me to, no, I have things. Maybe if you would have asked me four years ago, it would have been a lot more fresh. I have um, sort of a little put it back in the rearview mirror. But, you know, it's interesting because I think there's this perception, and I, I feel like there's always been this perception, even during the campaign that we started out, that like that, you know, I mean, Hillary Clinton is Hillary Clinton, you know? She is Hillary Clinton. That is a big deal. But... It was still starting out a campaign that, like, didn't have a lot. You know, you think of our our campaign in Nevada. We started it on the table of an Einstein bagel. We didn't have a massive list of data volunteers because they were all from her 2008 campaign. And what is the most likely volunteer? An old lady. So you can imagine how many of them maybe weren't <laughs> even alive before on those lists. You know, it really was a scrappy endeavor to get it going. There's the perception that we just thought we were going to win throughout the entirety of the the time. And it's like, no, actually, what was so interesting, particularly for folks who had um, got their start, which there were a lot of us who had got our start in the 2012 campaign. We had an opponent every single inch and every single step in 2016. And we really did fight in and run like we were 10 points down during the primary at every given point and did take Senator Sanders seriously, even prior to maybe when broader public didn't themselves he had a lot of advantages so like those are i just think there's like misconceptions that like should be cleared up on that front look i think that there are a lot of lessons learned that we you know 
perfected or tried to perfect a bit more in the 2020 election cycle, um, whether it was, you know, an aspect of making sure that we got organizing started as early as we possibly could in the battleground states that we needed to, which, you know, with a protracted primary that went all the way in 2016 was a little challenging. An aspect of, you know, making sure that we were talking to independents and, and persuadable voters, which, you know, that is another misconception of that, you know, that wasn't a part of our strategy on the Clinton team, that we didn't talk to persuadable voters. And well, I mean, depending on the state, I'll tell you that all states did. It was a matter of did we do it all the way until election day, which I think is important. You tilt again, elections are you know, one in in this country on a local level by like singular votes. And so, you know, if you are sending out canvassers to a neighborhood and they're independent voters in that neighborhood, they should talk to them still. They're there, right? And so making sure that we were, you know, doing persuasion from start to finish, which is something that we didn't do in 2016. But, you know, at the same time, one thing I think people have to realize is that it's not necessarily often a case of like just doing something else, you know, that comes at an expense of something that you are doing. What was the 2018 cycle like for you? That was a really fun cycle, actually, now that I, to just harken back on it. So I was the national GOTV director at the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee. And so, you know, our job was to take back the House, right? And in every way, shape, or form, that was freeing. Because when you're at the DTRIP, a committee, and as horrible as this may sound, I mean, you you literally you're just trying to take back the house. So it is a matter of just a number, right? It's just a matter of numbers, which means, you know, it means a whole host of things. It means, hey, we just need to find the best Democrat in this district who could actually win. And to certain extent, standpoint in in many quarters of like the of of this business, that is not seen as the best thing, right? That's how we you know, elected a Jeff Van Drew in New Jersey, for example. But even the Jeff Van Drew in 2018 in New Jersey helped get Nancy Pelosi back her gavel. And I think that's important is that, you know, the biggest lesson I learned from 2018 was that, I mean, you have to find the candidate who can win in the district. And that's really, really, really important. And the way that, you know, a Democrat talks about health care in New Jersey is and should be different than the way that a Democrat talks about health care in California versus Washington state. We are a big tent party, you know, and so there's room for that. Of course, that notion is fairly contested among the most ideological in our party who think that crudely that the most left-wing candidate is the best candidate in every district if they run the right way. Well, well, here's what I will also say about the 2018 cycle is that that is what you just said is also true in some cases, right? I think that what, as a party, I think what we learned in 2018 is is sort of reshaping or expanding our idea of what is an electable candidate, what is an electable Democrat. And that's that's a good thing. That is okay. And like a committee like the DCCC, it's okay if you get it wrong, you know, recognizing you were simply just trying to find the most electable candidate. But I think in 2018 very much expanded our idea of like, what does an electable candidate look like in a good way where we, you know, elected the most diverse Congress that our country's ever seen? And it must have been fairly satisfying to see the House flip and, and to win it after the heartbreak of the previous, you know, two years before. It, no, it definitely was. I mean, there were maybe a handful of us who were at the committee in 2018 who did work 
for Secretary Clinton's campaign in 2016. But there were a lot of folks at the DCCC who, in 2018, who worked there in 2016 as well. And they had their individual losses, races in Florida that like the committee and many folks there have been trying to win for cycle after cycle that we finally, you know, won. Florida 26 is being one of them. There was a lot of gratification and just more, more, more than anything, seeing some of like just like the hard fought districts that like these individual folks and operatives have been organizing in for cycle after cycle that finally turned. It's almost kind of like a Georgia situation. Yeah. Why did you pick up with Kamala in 2019? After the 2018 cycle, what tends to happen if you win and do a big thing, I mean, you have a lot of, you know, opportunities or options. And so, you know, and then kind of can come oftentimes, depending on the cycle, kind of quickly. Um, after 2018, that was kind of the case. A lot of opportunities post um like literally post-election day in still the month of November that I sort of had to give some answers for. Still, there weren't really any candidates who had, who had you know, announced that they were running for president. There were many people who were just like ready to jump into it and do another race. I was like, well, I've, I've done the last two. I'm a little tired. And I also just helped take back the house. I think maybe I want to break. Um, so I was not someone who was just automatic going to work for, for a candidate. But I did start to get a sense throughout the cycle that if I did work for any candidate, it would be Kamala. But still, without saying like that was going to happen, and also without knowing if she was going to run. And so I get to a point after Election Day 2018 where I have some offers that I have to give some answers to, some really exciting ones. But still in the back of my head, like, well, you know, a really amazing historic woman might run for president. And that might be something that possibly I want to be a part of. But also the other aspect of like the higher you get in politics, obviously, is that you are vying for a position of one as opposed to a position of many. And so there are all these different things of like, well, one, I have these options that I can sort of take now, or I can, you know, hold off and maybe Kamala runs, maybe she doesn't, I don't know, I have to say no to those. But also not only maybe does she run, maybe, or maybe that she doesn't run, maybe she runs and also just don't get the job that I want to do for her. Like, those are all the things that are that are going in your head. I'm a walker. I like to walk and think, and I like to oftentimes walk around the National Mall when I have to make, you know big decisions like this. And ultimately, it came down to one thing, which was if Kamala Harris ran for president and I wasn't a part of it, would I regret it? And the answer was yes. Would I regret every day seeing Kamala Harris run for president and me not playing a role in it? And so at that point, I mean, I said yes. But like what that all stems from is obviously aligning and being in alignment with her on, on from a policy perspective, which is obviously important. Arguably, maybe more important was just like, recognizing and knowing that she was a good person. And that was really important to me heading into if I did a race in 2020, recognizing that I would just have more more access to the candidate than I ever had for any of my other races. And I, it was really important that I worked for someone who, one, I never felt that I was ever going to wake up and see a bad news article and that made me you know, embarrassed to work for them. But two, someone who, if I saw them at their worst, I would still want to get back and up in the next morning and show up to work. And so it all boiled down to that. I tell people this all the time is that it's, it's rare that you work in politics and you can work for a candidate who there's both alignment on policy and you just really like them as a person. It's, it's hard that you get both of those. And, and, and her, I did. So those are sort of the thought processes that I went through. Did she live up to your, your expectations? 
<laughs> well, I mean, I think she's continued to make history. So, um, yeah, you know, it was a it was a fun, a hard primary, certainly um, a, a a fun one, but it was it was arguably the best shot that I've ever had. In that, in, in for so many different reasons, you know, one being that it was the first job that I've ever had where I walked into a room, not just a room, but a a senior leadership room. And mostly everyone in the room was a person of color, not just a person of color, but a woman of color. And that was really, really cool and incredible. Second, it's just, I'm sure that any person who works for any presidential candidate gets this to a certain extent. But when you work for like a uniquely singular candidate, like a Kamala Harris or even a Barack Obama or even a Hillary Clinton, you know, you you just travel with them in, in, in these different states and just the people who, who are so inspired by that person who you meet along the way. And, you know, for, for her, it was a lot of kids, a lot of young Asian girls, young black girls that were just so, so incredibly inspired. And honestly, are what made me, you know, go home every night and like, feel like we were doing something that was incredible, regardless of the results. Had we, had we made it to Iowa, people would have been surprised with our organizing program. You were national organizing director. What does that mean? As a national organizing director, um, I did a couple of things. I worked with our state teams to make sure that we were developing the organizing programs that we needed to, to win in the caucuses that we needed to, and giving them the support and the resources that they needed to actually get that job done. That's one piece. Second is, you know, you have these big moments in a campaign, in a in an election cycle that maybe don't exist in those four early states, but, you know, are, are, are really important in terms of the larger aspect of the national campaign um, are, you know, organizing opportunities for your, your state programs. And so really utilizing those moments and other resources to start to build out a national structure so that we were prepared for getting to pass the actual four primaries. So it's just sort of the March states. And then lastly, it's, you know, the, the data and the analytics pieces of figuring out exactly where we sh- should actually be investing staff, when we should actually be investing them, investing um, in these specific states and investing staff into them. And, um, and ultimately how we were, you know, building a national program that each of the states sort of could tie and live within. After she wasn't successful and Biden was, you sw- at some point along the way, you switched over to the Biden team. Tell me about that transition and tell me about your work with now President Biden. After then-Senator Harris um, suspended her campaign, um, and prior to me joining the Biden campaign, actually um, joined and started up an organization with a group of, of just really, really smart and talented um, organizing and Democratic operatives, really a lot from the Obama world, Paul Tooze, for example. We started this organization called Organizing Together 2020. And the premise of the organization was that we were probably going to have a long, protracted primary that went all the way, all the way up until the convention. The convention's in August. We can't wait until August to actually organize or we will lose. And so we have to actually start organizing in the battleground states now. And so our premise was let's start organizing in battleground states, put organizers on the ground in battleground states in offices to just start to talk to voters and volunteers so that we actually had some infrastructure to hand over to to whoever the nominee would be, regardless of who that person was. Because again, we just, we need to get rid of Donald Trump. And so started that organization, obviously in the midst of that, a pandemic happened, which then, you know, 
gave us the time and the space to really figure out while all the other primary candidates were still battling it out and trying to get out of the primary, um, we were able to sort of put our heads together and figure out, okay, what is what does this look like organizing in a pandemic? How do we even do it? You know, how do we get this going? How do we, you know, do anything when everyone is stuck in the house? And we were able to really develop that, figure that out, hire all the organizers or a lot of the organizers from all the primary candidates campaigns as they were dropping out so that they had a home to go to prior to the general election starting. And then once it was um, clear that Joe Biden was going to be our next president of the United States, or at least our our, our Democratic nominee, um, we sort of shut down our operation and two folks went over to the Biden campaign from our organization. It was me who went over and served as the national director of states organizing. I was the national organizing director for Organizing Together 2020. And then Jose Nunes, who was our digital organizing director for the Biden campaign. He was our digital director on Organizing Together 2020. He also was our digital organizing director for Commerce campaign. So me and him, we both had basically spent you know, a good solid almost at that point, two years, just working together, organizing together. And we both went over, um, started bringing and hiring some of our staff from the OT Organizing Together team um, to place in battleground states and actually get the job done. The transition was, you know, it was easy and it was seamless because, I mean, look, we had a good candidate, Joe Biden, regardless of all the mess that happened in the 2020 primary you know, we all love Joe Biden and we know him and we trust him and we believe in him and what he says. And we know that he's an honest person. And so, I mean, it felt good getting back there. And then the other aspect, and this is just how small politics is, is um, President Biden's national organizing director was our national organizing director at the DCCC in 2018. So we're great friends. And so it was very much kind of like just coming into coming into a room full of family and figuring out how we get this final hog or slog done in the midst of a pandemic with just Zoom screens and conference calls day in and day out. I've talked to a number of people who had significant roles, either as consultants or internally with the Biden campaign. And one thing that kind of struck me was the kind of quiet determination and confidence that they had, that we have a plan, we're gonna stick to the plan, We understand how gigantic the stakes are. We are going to try to win this, you know, and we think we will, but it's going to be very hard. Did that comport with your feeling about how the campaign approached things or what did you see? Coming in, I'm in, granted, really, really different, different settings, a primary and a general. You're sort of trying to juggle two things in a campaign constantly, right? You're, you're very much trying to just like drive your strategy, but also responding to things as they're happening and that in responding to the, the uncontrolled variables that exist in an election cycle. And like most of the variables are uncontrolled. You have no control over what your opponents are doing at all. You don't even know what they're going to do from day to day or from second to second. Um, you don't know where they're investing. You know, you don't know what their strategy is and you're sort of constantly juggling that. And you don't know how they're going to try to cheat. Well, and that as well. Well, and that as well, right? <laughs> and so, like, what's the Biden campaign during the during the primary? It was very clear that they did something that you know most of the other candidates didn't, which was kind of not get distracted with Twitter, which I think is is important. And like recognizing that like Twitter is real life. Twitter is not all life. 
you know? Um, and I think that that was something that was important is they kind of kept their head down and off of that, even to the extent of their staffers. During the general election, it certainly was just a sense of this is really, really serious and important work that we are doing and that the stakes are incredibly high and that this isn't, you know, a primary campaign. This is it. You know, this is this is our chance. And I think that 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 sort of humbled everyone and allowed for us to keep our head down. You also have to remember, I mean, we also were in a pandemic. And so it's easier to kind of just keep your head down and just do the work in the midst of the pandemic. Well, congratulations for winning that one. It really, boy, it's been easier to read the news and just to exist with the change to Biden. I just feel like a happier, lighter person. So thanks for that. The comparison, I'm going to make it a little weird one. People try to often compare like that day of it being announced that, you know, uh, we got it to the day that Barack Obama got elected office. And granted, I was a little younger. I don't think they're the same. But I do think that, in my opinion, and just because I hit the streets on both days, it was a little similar to when we um, had finally um, captured Osama bin Laden. It was kind of similar to that in terms of just how people felt on the street. Certainly like me being someone who that completely shaped my life. The bad guy got taken down. There you go. Yeah, the bad guy got taken down. And the good guy went. <laughs> He's not done though, unfortunately. He's still out there trying to get back into the Oval Office, isn't he? Tell me about your current work. Yeah, so currently I am at the at the Democratic National Committee. I'm the political chief of staff. And so what we do and what we focus on is really supporting our state parties and campaigns and coordinated campaigns and candidates so that we can win. In addition to making sure that we're communicating to the American people all of the work that the administration's done. How is that for you as a position? Are you enjoying it? It's great. You know, one of the one of the great things about it is that something's really important to me is that we take care of and, and foster all the what we built in 2020. You know, the big, massive organization that we built in 2020. In 2020, we mobilized people to take action, more people than any other presidential campaign in the history of American politics. So arguably in the history of the world, I'm sure. And it's really important that we keep those folks active and engaged. Just as much as I talk about like we did that in 2020, that work that we did in 2020, the successes of it really weren't ours. They were the successes of like a lot of work that arguably started right after Donald Trump got elected with the Women's March. And then what happened after the Women's March, we had like a couple of cool special elections. We had Doug Jones and Connor Lamb. And then we had, you know, this really, really important midterm election. And then we had 20 Democratic candidates. So there was a candidate for everyone. So all that is to say is that like we, there was an environment where it was very, very easy and there was a need for folks to get active and, and, and play a role. And it, you know, fostered a lot of people to actually take action. And I feel like it is our duty to keep them active and engaged so that they don't go away and, you know, and, and become inactive. And so I think there's that along with all the other tools and things that we built in the 2020 election cycle that are going to be really, really helpful for Democrats as we continue to try and, and win across the country. And so it's really good. I, I'm excited to be there just because we are keeping those things, fostering those things and making sure that we can put them to broader use for the Democratic Party. Well, they call it the permanent campaign now, like it never stops. When you look out at the very, unfortunately, very quickly approaching midterms and not too far on the heels of that, another presidential, 
what's your level of optimism and pessimism? What do you see in front of us? I'm really excited. I'm really excited and I'm really optimistic. I'm optimistic because there is still a a lot of energy out there. Um, A lot of folks, again, these folks who are engaged and mobilized in 2020 are still engaged and mobilized now and are doing such good work for, you know, local candidates and races that are that are currently happening in our country from special elections to municipal elections to, you know, upcoming elections that we have in November. There's a lot of energy. Um, So I'm excited about that. And I'm optimistic about that. I'm optimistic because we just did something that was incredible. One, we figured out how to run an election in the midst of a pandemic and win. And then right after that, what did we do? We made history by electing a black reverend and a Jewish millennial to the U.S. Senate from the state of Georgia. That's incredible. And so, look, we have a lot of hard work to do, but I think that we are up for the challenge. We can do hard things, as, as, as our campaign manager used to say. Yeah. Anatole, what about for you? So you've been really now steeped in American politics for quite a while, and you're still in the middle of it with this job. What do you want to do when you, when you look out into the future a little further? Where, where do you want to be? What kind of things do you want to be engaged in? Honestly, I don't think it's much different from the the work that I'm doing now. I would hope to be in a position of fostering the next Anatols of the world uh, in our, in democratic politics. Uh, and and there are a lot out there of just like great leaders who are going to, you know, be leading national organizing programs for presidential candidates in the future, and are going to be doing that now in the midterm elections in 2022. Um, and so I'm excited to continue to work with them and foster them and make sure that within that cohort of, you know, organizing leadership or democratic leadership as a whole, that we continue to um, make it a, a bit less white and, you know, much more diverse, you know, and not just less white, but also less male dominating as well. And sort of really open that door for folks who haven't had that door open for them, or it certainly hasn't been as easily open for them. And so I really want to play a role and in, in, in see that as a is a big responsibility for me, but really any person of color who probably is in a position that I'm in. And so really want to focus a lot of, you know, my work on that. And I think that as cycles continue, you know, my role will probably continue to change a bit, but I think it'll always continue to still be anchored on, you know, opening the door for, for younger folks, diversifying the work that we're doing and making sure that more people see it as an option. Again, I didn't even see politics as something that I could do before seeing Barack Obama. And I mean, that shouldn't be the case for, you know, high school kids, you know, they should know that this is an avenue that they can go through. But if you, if you don't see yourself in something, it's very, very hard to imagine it. Is there a question that I haven't asked you that you wish I would, would have asked you? That's the hardest question that you've asked. You haven't asked me anything about Georgetown. Yeah, you have a a fellowship now at Georgetown, as I understand it. What is that? What are you doing there? Yeah, so right now I am um, wrapping up a fellowship at at, at Georgetown's Institute of Politics and Public Service. So what they do every semester is they bring, which I wish that I'd had this when I was in school, they bring a cohort of fellows, um, you know, top political practitioners to really just spend time and be accessible to students for a semester. You teach a weekly discussion course, but really you are there to just be of access to some really, really smart students 
And for me, it was it was really incredible and it was really honored to have been accepted. But it was really important to, for me to even, you know, apply and look at that as an avenue. Because I thought it was really important post-2020, where we had just organized in a way that organizing has never been done before, to spend some time debriefing that work. We obviously debrief this stuff at the committee and, you know, from a very professional standpoint. But it was important for me to debrief it with people who have not been doing this work for 10 years, who aren't steeped into it so much that there's just a right way and a wrong way. And so there's so much in the middle that they just will never say. (laughs) And the thing with the students was, well, once so many of them obviously played a role in the 2020 election cycle in some way, shape or form, whether it was them volunteering for our campaign or whether it was them actually being staffers, which many of them were, um, or folks who had gone to, down to Georgia to help out there. And it was it was really helpful to just talk to them about the work that we had done and hear from them about like what organizing should look like moving forward and hear about you know the failures that we asked them to do, the things that they didn't think worked, and, and just to spend some time with them on that. And one of the things that I learned with regard to teaching and why it was so helpful is because like when you teach you are required to defend the premise of your argument. You know, you're defi- required to defend the premise of your argument and you're required to, you know, question if it's still relevant. Does it still have meaning? Does it even still matter, right? If it does, sure, let's like continue to do that and let's defend that status quo. But if it doesn't, then we should look at some new ideas. And so it, it forced me to be in a position in which I hadn't been in a very long time to just defend even the sheer basic aspects of the work that we do. And I think it really um, hopefully will be helpful in terms of informing, you know, the road ahead. You know, when I listen to you talk, I'm just struck by an optimism and a positivity that I kind of envy. Like, I I think I'm not sure I have it quite to the degree that you do about the future. Not sure why. Where do you think the source of that is for you? It probably is because I spend somewhat a lot of time focused on the work of people who are a little much younger than me, organizers who are generally a bit younger. And I think once you you spend a lot of time with younger kids and they are so much better than you were when you were their age and when you were in their shoes, I mean, it's impossible not to be optimistic when you like see some kid who's organizing for the first time in Las Vegas for Kamala Harris in 2019 and he is just such a better organizer than you. And he's organizing in the exact same turf that you organized in. That gives me a lot of optimism. Yeah. It's a pleasure to see something like that, isn't it? It really is. Well, definitely an honor to talk to you today. Is there anything else you want to say? I guess I would leave with saying, because hopefully there are a lot of perspective um, or, or, or would-be organizers who are listening, is that you know organizing is important. You guys should do it. It is the only aspect of a campaign that gets you votes. And 2020 was a weird cycle and a weird year. And I think that most folks who organized went through a unique experience. So grateful for all the work that they did, but hopefully they just stick in it because it's really, really important. And, you know, if not, if not them, who? And I don't want anyone else being responsible for sort of the the upkeep of our democracy than, you know, all the really, really smart young kids I've met and the bright organizers I've worked with. Makes a lot of sense. That was Anatole Jenkins. He's at dnc.org. 
This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.